We are always happy to have Dr. Scott Hahn with us here on Roadmap to Heaven. Today is no exception. Dr. Hahn, good morning to you. Good morning, Adam. How are you doing? I am doing well on this uh, beautiful morning, and I'm very excited because you have a new book out, Holy is His Name, The Transforming Power of God's Holiness in Scripture. And as we've mentioned uh, before, the whole premise of Roadmap to Heaven is how are we growing in holiness each and every day? And this book sets out to define a very important word, and that actually is the word holiness. What does the term holiness mean? How do we understand it? What's our relationship with holiness? And uh, rather than me, Muse, I'd like to turn to an expert who's written a book on it. So, Dr. Han, what is holiness? Well, all right. Great question. And I should step back and point out something that might be obvious but might not. That is, it's the job description of theologians to make distinctions. I mean, this has a, a great pedigree going back to the first few centuries where theologians had to distinguish between uh, the fact that Jesus is divine and yet human. And so you distinguish one person from two natures. And likewise, when you reflect upon the Trinity in the opening centuries of the Church, you speak of three persons sharing one nature. And so we distinguish person and nature not to separate, but to unite them in the proper way. Well, in a similar manner, we have to approach holiness in terms of that which is primary and that which is secondary. Primary holiness uh, applies to God and to God alone. You alone are holy. Secondary holiness is where it is a gift to us, but it's not something essential or proper to any creature unless it is conferred upon them by the one who alone is holy. We also distinguish between objective and subjective holiness. Subjective holiness is what most people sort of associate with the term, and that is uh, people who are upright, but also people who are frightened. You think of Moses at the burning bush and how he turns away, and yet at the same time, he just has to look. Or perhaps another example would be uh, Isaiah in chapter 6 when he receives his call to be a prophet. He has this vision of the seraphim who are in the heavenly temple beholding the glory of God, crying out, Holy, 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 the Sanctus that we sing in every Mass. And at one point, you can see that they're enthralled. On the other hand, even though they're seraphic and elevated, they cover their faces with their wings. And so there is a sense that Rudolf Otto described as Mysterium Tremendum et Fascinans. It's a mystery that causes us to tremble, and yet simultaneously enthralls and fascinates us. Well, that is subjective holiness. That is the quality that we see in other people, and it's also the response that we have when we encounter either God or someone who is filled with the Holy Spirit. But objective holiness, again, is that which is primarily applied to God, and really God alone is holy, and so what do we mean? Well, the Catechism nails it. In paragraph 2809, we read the definition that I find to be superior to whatever else I have seen. It reads, The holiness of God is the inaccessible center of his eternal mystery. And then it goes on. What is revealed of it in creation and history, that's what Scripture calls glory, the radiance of his majesty. But the idea that the holiness of God is the inaccessible center of his eternal mystery 
is sort of evoking what we know about the temple in Jerusalem, that you would approach God entering into the outer court, continuing on to the holy place, but then the inaccessible center of the temple was the Holy of Holies. And so this seems to be based upon an analogy that in the Old Testament, prior to the Incarnation, God's own holiness was reserved for him and the angels. Every vision that the prophets have of God in heaven points to the fact that the population of heaven was exclusively angelic. You have the seraphim, you have the cherubim, but you don't have any humans there. And this is why I think it's crucial to see the progressive development of holiness as a theme in Scripture, because everything turns on the Incarnation. The coming of Christ is the hinge of salvation history, and we know that, of course we do. But, you know, in the New Testament, what you discover in the visions of John and the Apocalypse, as I pointed out years ago in the Lamb's Supper, you have heaven repopulated. After Jesus' death, resurrection, he ascends into heaven, but he carries captivity captive, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, verse 8, and he's quoting Psalm 68, which points forward to the difference that will make when, in fact, Christ ascends into heaven, and he's going to basically take the souls of the faithful departed of the Old Testament with him, which is echoed or reflected in Matthew 27, where Matthew is the only evangelist who notices that after Jesus' resurrection, wait a minute, what's going on? The tombs of the saints of the Old Testament are opened all around Jerusalem, and their bodies are seen, but only for a brief time, presumably the time before the Ascension. And so heaven is repopulated, and it's so appropriate for us at this time of the liturgical calendar to reflect upon the fact that we have all saints for the first time, and all souls in purgatory who are being prepared and purified so that they can enter into the glory of God's own holiness. And I, I just think that the more we reflect upon this, the more we stoke the fires of our own longing, our own desires, to make sure that every day and every hour and minute of the day, we try our best to keep in view that thing for which we were made. Because there's only one goal, and that is to become a saint. And if we fail at our job, and if we, you know, fail in society, if we're not, you know, respected, if we're not wealthy, but we make it home, if we humble ourselves, he will exalt us. On the other hand, what the world considers to be success, wealth, fame, popularity, prestige, and influence, if that puffs us up and we end up not making it home to heaven, we'll look back and see for that person, every apparent success was really just another step downward, a kind of abject failure in disguise. And so I am so grateful for what you said at the outset, Adam, because really this idea of a highway, a road to heaven, that's what our lives are. That's what our years are. I just turned 65, and so I'm counting my own days. You know, I'm more aware of my mortality perhaps than ever before. But at the same time, we all know that the mortality rate for each and every one of us is 100%. None of us are going to get out of here alive. Right. <laughs> so the only thing that really matters is whether we allow ourselves to be filled with the Holy Spirit through good times and bad. 
If I may use an analogy here, as you've spoken about primary holiness, secondary holiness, objective holiness, and subjective holiness, and you use that term stoking the fire, one of my favorite things about this time of year is getting together for a backyard around the fire pit in my uh, suburban home, and on a crisp, cool fall evening, you know, I, I may be cold, I can't really do anything to make myself warm, but fire by its very nature is hot. And the closer I draw to the fire, the hotter I will become because that fire will radiate its heat on me. I will absorb it. Essentially, this is what you're saying about holiness, that God is by his nature holy. And the closer we draw to him, the more that holiness rubs off on us. We, we don't give it to ourselves. That's exactly right. In fact, you know, we can become good citizens, good students, good scholars, good athletes, you know, but if you want to become a saint, it's not about making ourselves bigger and better every day. It's really more about making ourselves smaller and drawing closer to Jesus, like Our Lady at the foot of the cross, like the saints of all ages. You know, and so you see a kind of convergence of two themes. On the one hand, we read in Hebrews 12 that our God is a consuming fire. Now, the author is quoting Deuteronomy. On the other hand, we also hear in 12.14, the author of Hebrews says, Strive for holiness, for without it no man will see God. Now, what does it mean to strive after something that we cannot conjure up on our own? Well, it basically means opening ourselves up more and more to the gift of God, which is the Holy Spirit. And so when you look at the choirs of angels, there are nine of them, and the highest one, is the seraphim, the ones who are crying, holy, 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 there in Isaiah 6. But in Hebrew, zeraph literally means fire or burning ones, because of the nine choirs, the seraphim are the closest to the holy God of Israel. And as a result, you might describe them as combustible. But, you know, creatures are not that way by themselves, not even the seraphim. But if you take a hard, cold bar of iron, you know, and stick it in the fire, it won't burn up, but on the other hand, it will acquire the properties of the fire that are extrinsic to that iron bar. And that is the analogy that the saints have used. I'm thinking especially of St. Thomas Aquinas, that our own created nature, whether we're angels or whether we're humans, is not something that is inherently holy. On the other hand, when we recognize that we came from God, that we will return to God, and that we ought to live every moment of every day, out of love for God, loving Him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, we want to plunge our own fallible, weak, wayward humanity into the fire of God's love. And when we do that voluntarily, He imparts to us something that we cannot impart to ourselves. But on the other hand, once we get it, we then become an instrument by which others can also combust, as it were. And so as we allow ourselves to kind of gather the love of God, and to acquire that for ourselves, you know, there is nothing more contagious than holiness. The joy of the Lord is precisely the trademark, the, the feature of those who are growing in holiness, because they recognize that, wow, you know, the only thing for which I was made is precisely what I can't do for myself. And so this is why we worship. This is why we rest in the presence of God. And in fact, the only time holiness occurs in the Ten Commandments is with the Third Commandment, that is, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Well, how do you remember it? How do you sanctify it? Well, you get dressed up, 
you know, you have liturgical vestments, furniture, music, no, banners, and all of the rest. Well, yeah, that's fine, but that's secondary. The only thing that is mentioned is that you cease from your work. You and your spouse and your sons and your daughters, your manservants, your maidservants, even the oxen and the asses and the sojourners in your gates. In other words, we stop working after six days to acknowledge the fact that the only thing for which we were made is a work of God. It is not just a creative work where he fashions another finite creature. It is, well, it is a fatherly work. When Jesus heals on the Sabbath in John 5, he takes that man who had been paralyzed for 38 years, and he heals him. And when confronted as to why he did it on the Sabbath, he didn't say, well, I I couldn't come back tomorrow to do it. I couldn't make it yesterday. No, he doesn't heal in spite of the fact that it's the Sabbath. He heals precisely because of it. And he says, my Father is working still. The Creator God worked for six days, but God reveals Himself as Holy Father, Holy Son, and Holy Spirit, precisely by our ceasing from our labor in humility and total honesty. We're saying to God, we're saying to ourselves, we're saying to others, that the one thing for which I was made and all of us were made is holiness, but that's the one thing we can't do on our own. We are saved by grace, not by works. Now, the grace will enable us to go back to work on Monday, but the fact is, we have got to acknowledge that holiness is proper to God alone, but it is also our property when we acknowledge the fact, God, I am your property. I come from you, I return to you, I belong to you, and I'm not only okay with that, I am overjoyed to live it out to the max. As we are talking this morning here on the radio, I, I also think of that analogy that, you know, the radio waves are going to transmit from the antenna and from the tower whether people turn their radios on or not. And it's incumbent upon me if I want to receive the radio station, I have to turn the radio on and tune in to what's being transmitted. And so... We keep coming back to this, that there's no amount of work that that Scott Hahn or Adam Wright or any of our listeners could do on our own to become holy. And you said that the Catechism teaches holiness is the inaccessible center of his eternal mystery. And I'm thinking to myself, well, then how do I even begin to access that? And we've started to talk about this with the third commandment and the Sabbath. But, uh, Dr. Hahn, one of the things I rejoice in is I don't even have to figure that out and solve that problem because— God takes care of it. God's going to transmit himself to us. The question is, how do I become more receptive to that in 2022? Yeah, that's the point, Adam. That's a great question, too, because, I mean, that pertains to everybody every day, 24-7 for all of our lives. You know, again, going back to the job description of theologians and making distinctions, you know, we distinguish between the first table of the law and the second. That is, the first three out of Ten Commandments all pertain to God. It's the vertical axis of the cross, you might say. Have no other gods before me, don't take my name in vain, and remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And then the last seven pertain to, well, the common good of our fellow humans, uh, beginning with our fathers and mothers and so on. And so we distinguish holiness on the one hand from righteousness on the other. We're not distinguishing them in order to separate them, because the Ten Commandments are together, just like the two bars of the cross are. But the vertical bar, as it were, is that relationship that we have to God, the Holy One, who wants to make us holy. And then the horizontal 
crossbar of the cross is our righteousness. Now, we distinguish in theology between justification or justice on the one hand and sanctification or sanctity on the other. Now, 99 out of 100 theologians I know use these terms interchangeably, but justice was, you might say, the uh, responsibility of the king. Living in the palace, he was to administer justice along with the royal cabinet, the officers, the ministers of justice. On the other hand, holiness pertains to the priests who are in the temple, in the presence of God. Now, we distinguish the king and the priest, recognizing that, of course, Jesus becomes both the royal high priest, but not in the Old Testament. And this is why I think it's so significant that the vision of God's holiness occurs in Isaiah 6, and the vision begins in the year that King Uzziah died. I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, lifted up, high and lifted up, and that's when the seraphim cry out, holy, 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 and the foundations of the heavenly temple thresholds shake. And what does Isaiah say? Woe is me, I am lost, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of uncleanness, for my eyes have seen the King, the, the Lord of hosts. Now, that marker in the year that King Uzziah died is not just like a temporal marker, because if you go back and you study what happened that caused King Uzziah to die, well, in 2 Chronicles 26, King Uzziah was successful beyond almost any other king of his time. He was the tenth in the line of David, and he extended the boundaries. He caused the economy to flourish. He strengthened the military. You might say he was like a, a mega king. He made Israel great again. Well, he was so puffed up with pride, as we read in 2 Chronicles 26, that one day he just strolled out of the palace, walked into the temple, and kept going beyond his own limits. He entered the holy place, and the priest tried to stop him. And then as he approached the Holy of Holies, suddenly, what happens? This king, who had reigned for over 40 years, is covered with leprosy. They drag him out. They don't just take him back to the palace. They have to have a kind of makeshift royal leper house for him, in which he dies in shame. So when Isaiah says, I am a man of uncleanness, and I dwell in the midst of a people of uncleanness, that's precisely because they blurred the lines between righteousness, justice on the one hand, and holiness or sanctity on the other. And it was a lesson that Uzzah also learned back in 2 Samuel 5 and 6 when he saw the oxen stumble and the ark might have tumbled, so he reached out and touched the ark of the covenant. So he was smitten because he knew that he wasn't allowed to touch that which the, the Levites alone are to carry. And so for us, to confuse things that are inseparable, but yet thoroughly distinct. This, I think, is the most important thing that theologians can help ordinary believers to see in order to live. Six days pertains to righteousness, justice, good citizenship, and all of that. Then the seventh day, in this case, of course, it's the first day of the week, because Christ has achieved the Sabbath rest in his resurrection before we were even born, much less before we go to work. But at the same time, we can see that this commandment in the Decalogue still applies to us, and it helps us to kind of coordinate our lives so that as we begin each week by celebrating the resurrection on the eighth day, the first day, Sunday, and even the rabbis were aware of the fact that why is circumcision 
legislated to be done on the eighth day, well, because the covenant was broken, we need a new creation, as Rabbi Hirsch put it. And if anybody is in Christ, he is a new creation. In Colossians 2, the mortal flesh that Jesus assumed was cut off. And so the ultimate circumcision is the resurrection of Jesus. So on the eighth day, the first day, on Sunday, we sanctify ourselves, but really and truly, we gather and we rest and we worship so that God can do for us what we can't do for ourselves or our loved ones. That is, He makes us holy. And so then the rest of our work week can be fulfilling righteousness and justice through keeping the other commandments. But holiness spills over from the first day into the other six. And so all of our work is ordered to worship. The fruit of our labor is offered in liturgy. Righteousness, justification, all of that is ordered to what is greater, and that is the holiness of God. So we distinguish to unite, just as we distinguish the two natures of Christ to show how they're united in the one person of the Son, or the three persons of the Trinity are united in the oneness of the divine nature. So righteousness and holiness are distinct, and yet they're united in Christ, but they're also meant to be united in us. Justification was defined to Trent as our participation in the Sonship of Christ. Sanctification has never been defined by the magisterium, but the closer we get to the need for overcoming these heresies, we're going to see that just as the Son proceeds from the Father, and we share that in justice, so likewise the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, and we enter into a participation of that, and that's called sanctification. Now, I, I realize that, you know, for a, a conversation on the radio, this is, like, impossibly lofty. But it's sort of like, well, okay, but what better use do we have of our time as these airwaves go out? What we ought to reflect upon are, what are the implications? What are the layers or the levels of meaning that we find in the Word of God, that we find in the Church's teaching, that we find 24-7 in our own ordinary work? And I would say that the key to this that will unlock every door in our house is that if we allow the Lord to fill us with the Holy Spirit, then no matter how mundane the chores we do might be, they are going to be the spillover effect of holiness. So as we do little things with lots of love, we're going to discover that these are the steps that we ascend and end up <laughs> discovering the Holy One of Israel, that God alone is holy but he is here for the purpose of making us holy. In the ordinary works that we do each day, if we're doing them for him, we're going to have extraordinary grace and the truth of holiness applying to us forever. It sounds like this is really hammering the home the point that we make so often, because we need to be reminded of it so often, that if we live that life of righteousness— uh, not just the six days a week, but in every moment of the day, always keeping the commandments. But if we live that life of righteousness, it removes the impediments to be in relationship with our Lord. And if we're in relationship with him, he will impart his holiness. But then if we choose something over him, we make something else God instead of God, we, our will and not his will, or we commit that mortal sin because we want that and we know better with God, we breach the relationship. It needs to be repaired. And if the relationship's broken, we can no longer be tuned in to receive his holiness. And so I love how you say they're distinct but united, that it sounds like we can't be sanctified if we're not in relationship, and the best way to stay in relationship is to make sure that we're being righteous 
you know, in everything we do. That brief, practical summary description you just gave was like spot on, bullseye. I mean, laser precision, and I'm not flattering you. You know, it's a funny thing because in my book, uh, Holy is His Name, I, I try to avoid diving into the stuff that I've just been talking about for like the last eight or nine minutes because it really is somewhat elusive uh, and lofty. On the other hand, what you just did in that brief summary description that is so practical for our own lives to really dread and avoid mortal sin and all of the things that lead to it, this is really the thing that I emphasize in the book, Holy is His Name, because what I show in the book is what I discovered over the course of years, I mean decades. I should have noticed, because it was hiding in plain view, but I never did, that holiness occurs only one time in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. And it occurs in the very beginning. In Genesis 2, verse 3, the seventh day is consecrated by the Lord as the sign of the covenant. It is the Sabbath, which is the climax of creation. And then in Genesis 2, we also read about how God made man and breathed in those nostrils the breath of life. What is that? The Holy Spirit. It's sanctifying grace. And so our first father wasn't just breathing oxygen. He was breathing the breath of God's Spirit. He had sanctifying grace. He had the grace of divine sonship. This is the mystery, because ten verses later, when God says, the day you eat the forbidden fruit, you will surely die, you read the next chapter, they ate, they didn't die, a natural death, but wait, they did die, a supernatural death, because they committed mortal sin. It was an act of spiritual suicide, or what the Catechism calls the death of the soul. We fear the death of the body. We completely forget about mortal sin causing the death of the soul. So as they become our first parents and transmit human nature, they transmit human life but is utterly devoid of divine life. That's why even if your, your parents were canonizable saints like Therese of Lisieux had, they had to get her baptized. And when she was baptized, as Paul describes in Romans 5 and 6, original sin was contracted by Therese, just like it was by you and me, but then the spiritual death is overcome through the waters of baptism. Paul describes that as a resurrection in Romans 6. And we are raised in the waters of baptism more than Lazarus was raised on the fourth day, because he only got his human life back to the body, but we get divine life back that's eternal, that is holiness, that is sanctifying grace. The single most underrated gift of all time is precisely what we got when we were reborn, and then what we get when we are hearing the words of absolution, when we have done our best to confess every known mortal sin with proper contrition, and God makes up for what we lack, and we walk out of there more than Lazarus walked out of his tomb, more alive than he was. And these are the, the precious truths that we call the sacred mysteries that constitute the articles of the faith. You know, and it also explains why in Scripture, on the one hand, Holiness never occurs again in the whole book of Genesis. And yet, when you get to Exodus, there's an explosion of holiness. And I go into a, a pretty clear and simple explanation that holiness occurs in the 40 chapters of Exodus, something like 98 times, beginning with, take off your shoes, Moses, for the ground that you stand on is holy at the burning bush. And then the holy tabernacle, the holy Ark of the Covenant, the holy feasts, the holy sacrifices, 
all of these things are holy, including the holy land that they're headed to, and they're called to be a holy nation at Sinai there in Exodus 19. But it took me to hear from a rabbi, uh, Rabbi Berman pointed out, what I should have seen, again, it was hiding in plain view, that if you keep reading from Exodus to Leviticus, you keep hearing all about holiness, but never once in the Hebrew Bible is anybody ever called a saint. When I first read that in Rabbi Berman's book on the Temple, I'm like, no, no, that can't be right. And then he just explains that, yeah, all of these things are holy, but all of these persons are called to a holiness that they never obtain so that nobody's ever referred to as a saint. And then I found what I thought to be, ah, I've proven them wrong. Because you have in Daniel 7 a description of the saints of the Most High. But wait a second, what I discovered was actually the exception that proves his rule, because that vision that Daniel has in Daniel 7 is of the Son of Man riding on the clouds of glory back to the Ancient of Days in heaven to receive a kingdom that is universal and everlasting, but he turns around, and what does he do in the second part of that vision? He confers that kingdom upon, wait for it, the saints of the Most High. So the only time you hear in the Hebrew Bible people referred to as saints, it is precisely in the future when the Son of Man has come from heaven, he has lived, he has died, he has risen, and when he ascends into heaven to the Ancient of Days, to the Father, he gets a kingdom that has always been his, but he gets it for the purpose of giving it to us. Suddenly, there is a much greater explosion of holiness in the New Testament. First of all, with the overshadowing of Mary, and then likewise with the birth of the, the Christ child. But above all, in Acts and in the Epistles, Paul is going around calling everybody saints. Why? Because you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified. So through baptism, we get something that you could never get through circumcision, and in the Holy Eucharist, we get something that was never conferred through some lamb whose throat was slashed, whose body was burned, and we ate it. All of these sacraments in the old law were signs that point to the sacraments of the new covenant. And these sacraments are conferring upon us a power to grow in holiness that, you know, like Jesus says, the kings and the prophets long to see what you all see, to hear what you hear, to get what you got. But they didn't. We do. And it's like, you've got to be kidding. The relationship between the Old and the New Covenant is this divine pivot. What difference does the Incarnation make? Far more than we probably realize or appreciate. And so we have a capacity to become saints in ordinary ways. Now, the sacraments don't make it easy, much less automatic or robotic, but the sacraments do make it possible because God is... Well, because the sacraments are not primarily rituals that we are performing for God to get Him to do what we want. No, they're primarily actions of God in order to make us what He made us to be. And so, you know, this is one of those things... You know, we're in the midst of this three-year Eucharistic revival that the bishops of America have called for, and I'm grateful that the bishops of America have called for this. But I would also say that as Catholics, we've got to realize that this is more than jargon, it's more than doctrine. You know, when we think of the Real Presence, Transubstantiation, Baptismal Regeneration, 
You know, my son Jeremiah was ordained a year and a half ago through holy orders and consecration. I don't think we really see just how truly fantastic these truths are. I mean, there's no way they can all be true, Adam, unless, in fact, they are. And, of course, they are true, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. It's the Catholic gospel. But the fact of holiness and the sacraments and the Eucharist, I mean, these things are far more unbelievable than we let ourselves believe. It doesn't mean we've got to just kind of get frantic, you know, and get ourselves, you know, all warm and fuzzy. But I think what we have to do is just sit back and say, the only logical and reasonable response to the reality of the truths that we profess in the creed, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of what? Saints? And not just the forgiveness of sins, but life everlasting and the resurrection. I mean, it's like, whoa, it's amazing how unamazed we are at the things that we profess. And I can't help but wonder if sometimes, you know, our guardian angels hear us profess our faith, and it might sound more like a parrot saying, Polly, want a cracker? I mean, we, we should continue professing. But in the midst of the world, in the midst of all of our family life and busyness, we've got to carve out time to pray. That's what one day in seven is for. It's not just for like, you know, a, a, a 49-minute Mass and then a rush to the, <laughs> to the parking lot. It really is carving out the time that we need to cultivate a supernatural outlook, to live in time from an eternal perspective. And I think what happens then is things start to fall into place. You know, even the problems that we might have in our marriage with our kids, with, you know, our boss at work or wherever we find ourselves, we can see that it's mostly through suffering that God, in effect, makes us saints. You know, and I, I, I point out in the book that the, the people who are in heaven are all celebrating their graduation from the school of suffering. The people in hell, you might describe every single one of them as dropouts. That is, they would not allow the Lord to make them holy through suffering. You know, but we hear in Hebrews 5, though a son, he learned obedience to what he suffered, and so he became the source of eternal salvation for all of us who obey him. And so the school of suffering is really, in a certain sense, unavoidable. You could run, but you can't hide from suffering and death. So why did God allow it? Because it's sort of like the, I suppose it's like the chisel in the hands of the divine sculptor by which he kind of chips away at our own hardness and then molds us. He, he, he really sculpts us into saints, and each and every one of us is totally different. I, I'm sorry, Adam, for going on and on, because I, <laughs> oh, it's, it's, I love right. this stuff perhaps too much. <laughs> I, I am soaking it up, Dr. Han. Now, for, for those of you listening that are saying, well, that was a lot, and I've got a couple things here, of, a couple notes of good news for you. Number one, the book is available, Holy is His Name, The Transforming Power of God's Holiness in Scripture, from Emmaus Road Publishing. You can go to stpaulcenter.com and find everything you need there. That's ststpaulcenter.com. And you can find even more great books and resources from Dr. Hahn and his team at the St. Paul Center. Number two, everything we just talked about, this entire conversation, we're going to make available on our podcast. And if you're like me, you're going to be going back maybe two or three times just to hear it again and keep processing that, and that's okay. Uh, but Dr. Han, we are very grateful for the time that you have given us today, and we're, we're grateful for all of your work for the Church. Thank you so much for being with us on Roadmap to Heaven today. Oh, Adam, I should say you're welcome, but above all, 
heartfelt thanks to you for the invitation, for the hospitality, and for all of the great work that you're doing. Keep it up, brother. Thank you. We are going to take a break here. Stay tuned.